This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Daniel Folliard. Dr. Daniel Folliard is a professor of modern history at the University Paris City and the author of Dislocating the Orient, British Maps and the Making of the Middle East, 1854 to 1921. Today, he's here to talk with us about his most recent book, <clears throat> The Violence of Colonial Photography which was published by Manchester University Press in 2022. Daniel, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really glad to be able to talk uh, about the book with you today. Thank you. It's such a fascinating book, uh, The Violence of Colonial Photography. Beautiful book cover as well. I do strongly encourage our listeners to, to pick up the book or check the book online. Uh, but before starting to talk about the book, can you please briefly introduce yourself, tell your tell our listeners about your field of expertise? Yeah, so my, my focus is in the last decade was mostly on, on visual material related to uh, European colonialisms. Um, so I started off studying a, a lot maps and map making in particular. And, and then that brought me, because obviously many of these um, Topographers and map makers were really interested in the medium of photography that brought me to photography uh, progressively. So the, 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 my second monograph is very much the result of the first one, in a sense, the a sort of expansion of, of the archive I was, I was interested in. So I'm, I'm slowly becoming, I guess, a sort of a, a historian very, very um, interested in, in photography as, as a material to document late 19th century, early 20th century, imperialisms with a very global take more and more. And what I'm doing now is I'm currently working on a project uh, that tries to investigate how very large photographic, photography collections can be explored at scale by historians. So we are using digital solutions in particular to, to try and, and sift through a very large amount of material. And uh, what was the story of the inception of this book? And what made you think that uh to write a book about colonial photography? So it's always, as, as you know, as a, as a humanities um, expert um, and scholar, it's always sparked by a combination of things. Um, so it's, it's partly an archival accident to a certain extent, a series of archival accidents, which I, I like to call them this, where you're like sifting through material and you realize that some, some untapped, uh, images haven't been addressed by by colleagues, and it's also intellectual in, encounters and and discussions. So it all started a few years ago. Um, I was very fortunate to to teach at the University of Texas at Austin for a full semester. My I, I was at the Université Paris Nanterre at the time, and we had this 
exchange with the English department. And my office was right in front of the Harry Ransom Center, which is a very an amazing uh, archival center. And I was just finishing my, my first book. I was actually editing the, the proofs of dislocating the Orient and starting thinking about a new project. And, and looking at, I started looking at this remarkable collection of photographs because the Harry Ransom Center bought the Elmut and Alison Gernsheim collections a few, a few years back. And it's, this is one really, one of the largest collections of early photographs in existence. And it contains several fascinating series, such as uh, War Albums from India, Border Warfare in India, the Boer, etc. So what you could call um, not overlooked material. People have used this material, material before, but the, the not high-art photography, war photography used by um, soldiers, rank, mid-ranking officers, high-ranking officers in the British Empire. And at the same time, there was an exhibition in Austin uh, titled Life and Death on the Border, uh, focusing on uh, the violence on the US-Mexico border in the early uh, 20th century. An exhibition featured um, albums and postcards that were showing very raw takes on, on violence on that, in that area in the early 20th century. As you know, uh, during the Mexican Revolution, the Texas Rangers um, uh, exerted uh, violence against uh, Hispanic-speaking people on the border. And the exhibition and the, the work of, of colleagues around, around the exhibition made me realize how a wealth of what I would call some vulgar photographic material, if you wish, amateur photos and cheap postcards, could help document and write the history of extreme violence in situation where racial prejudice and, and forms of coloniality were very intense. And at the same time, um, I was engaging in discussions with uh, people like Ben Brower, uh, who you probably know wrote a, a, a very an excellent book on violence in French Algeria. Philippa Levine was there and, and many others. Would, would, I could share insights and perspectives on the project. So that's as you can see, that's clearly what this combination of things that clearly started the, the, the project. And the last element, I think, uh, was also the fact I'm, I'm coming from, a, I'm, I'm French. My family, like many other French families, has, had its own, uh, has its own colonial history. My great-grandfather um, had PTSD from his five years fighting on the Western Front in France in, in World War I, and he chose to um, enlist uh, in the French army of the Levant. This was the part of the French army that managed, if you want, the French mandate of Syria uh, in the 1920s. And he participated probably in many of the violent uh, events uh, that, that uh, in particular, I, uh, the, um, the fight against Faisal, uh, which was defeated by the French Ihan Messaloum in, in July 1920. So we have a bunch of photographs. None of them are really disturbing, but you could see how important it was to somebody like him and to his family in terms of documenting these colonial experiences. And I have this notion, if you wish, that colonial legacies and re related visual material were not, that was not something uncommon, if you will, in, in European families. And I was proven right, I think, uh, during the researches for the book, there was a huge amount of private collections uh, popping up, if you want, documenting ordinary colonialism, but also more violent and disturbing things. So 
as usual for a project like this, it's, it's really a combination of archival encounters, intellectual discussions, and more personal motivations. Uh, that, that was excellent to set the scene, and you actually raised a lot of points that I'd like to pick up as we go ahead later on. Uh, one of them is choosing photography as a medium to tell history, which is which to me was a, a very fascinating avenue to look at um, this period of history. Uh, but before that, can you talk about first in the first place maybe the scope of the book in terms of the time period you cover and i'm also really interested in the categories of the images that you discuss so you you categorize the images that you discuss in this book one of them is called is related to small wars of colonial front the other one is about early conflict photographs and then photographs of suffering and physical coercion so i'm interested to know the scope and also the the way you approach images as well so yeah the, the book focuses really so in terms of chronological span, um, the first two chapters are actually trying to, to provide a background to the history of early conflict photography to make sure people understand uh, where things were in the 1890s, 1900s. So the book is covering really the peak of European expansion in Africa and Asia uh, in a matter of 30 years uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And one of the problems when, when tackling such an issue at such during such a period is um, you are an unwilling prisoner of the vocabulary used by the people involved in this process. And it is a very when, when you take a look at these photographs, it is a very one-sided vocabulary and vision and projection, because there's there is a huge asymmetry in the records, and we, we will probably talk about that. There is a huge that, that, empire of papers and images on the European side and, and much less material to try and hear the voices of the colonized and, and the victims. So as a historian, I think you cannot ignore the words, phrases and concepts used by the people of the past. And if you just project your present categories on the past, onto the past, you, you usually end up with anachronisms. But at the same time, once you've carefully looked at how things were named, um, and it is important to, to try and shatter, to disturb the categories of the past because they stop revealing things at a point and they become obstacles to our understanding. And if you focus on colonial context in particular, uh, it, it is very clear that both the French and the British um, distinguish between the initial phase of conquest and warfare and the second phase of policing and so-called pacification, that's the word that the French are using a lot, uh, with the idea that, yeah, war has stopped. There's, there was a first phase of necessary between quotation marks, violence, and then the French civilizing mission is supposedly stabilizing things. If you follow the grain of this distinction between war and peace, you completely ignore the fact that it is not what is happening on the ground, what was happening on the ground. Uh, there is a continuum of actual physical violence, it's not just epistemic violence in, in colonial contexts. And that's why I, I chose to look at very disturbing images of physical violence. I was interested in the uh, ineluctable uh, materialization of this violence. Uh, and that violence just changed in intensity and shape between the so-called phase of warfare and the, the so-called phase of pacification. Um, and there are some extremely gruesome images I didn't use in the book because of their nature for of French military activity in the Sahara, for instance, in, in the 1890s. 
in a period where supposedly things are pretty much under control. And you can see these very violent events being, being um, recorded by the camera. And it is a war. This is, it was obviously a very violent phase of French colonization, but it has no name. It's not named as a war in any records. And it still has no name in the control vocabularies of the main archival institution in the world. Um, so that's very interesting to, to try and think the categories uh, both of the time and how the archives are, are actually categorizing things and images. Um, I had to work against sometimes. That's that's true. For the French, it was a punitive police policing expedition, but for local people, obviously, it was war in its most abject um, dimensions. So I think it illustrates this, this case illustrates how it is critical to destabilize the vocabularies we find in the archives. So what I tried to do was to distinguish between three main recreate categories, if you want. Small wars is actually one of these euphemisms used by colonial powers at the, at the, at, at the time. And I, I tried, I always use quotation marks to, to use them. They, they refer to the first fear, if you'd like, of events of mass violence I, I was tackling in the book. Those were, that were directly colonial in nature, where the French and the British um, conquered territory. There is a subcategory of this larger central category of the book, which I called early conflict photography, which is early visual coverage of events of organized violence. They were sometimes purely colonial, sometimes happening in what you could call the imperial sphere of the French of the British, which was, um, if you, I work on, I worked on China, for instance, China was not per se a pure colony for these uh, European powers, but still very much under the influence of British and French imperialism and American imperialism as well, Japanese, obviously. Um, and then you've got, as a, a just underlined just before, these visual records of inflicted pain, punishment, coercion, after the so-called war, uh, delimited by the Europeans. And they are, not, they are never completely disconnected from pure military violence. Um, photographs of colonial warfare and con colonial coercion are all part of a sort of continuity of subjugations of colonized bodies, if you will. And uh, another thing I'm really interested in is that why photography, especially before 1940, 14 wasn't really considered an important source for studying history. So what happened that it, the idea of using uh, photographs picked up? So, I mean, it, it was that there's a huge amount of great monographs and articles that I could rely, rely upon. Um, what was, what's new in the book, I think, one, one of the, um, um, the things that the book is, um, is doing is trying to recreate, to um, redefine a chronology of uh, early conflict photography. It's actually a very dynamic field of study, but where you're, you're completely right is there probably more work done on the First World War, on the 1920s, 1930s, where the, the, the golden age, if you want, of photojournalism, you think about Kappa, you think about these people. I think what my book is adding here are insights on how early conflict photography developed outside traditionally acknowledged sites and events. Um, when, when one thinks about the first war photographs in particular. So what comes to mind to most people would be the American Civil War, 
some people might know about uh, Roger Fenton's uh, work during the Crimean War in the 1850s. But it's very often a sort of, should I say, some kind of Euro-American centric vision of the subgenre, right? Uh, and as, as I explained in the book, the first histories of war photography were actually published in the early 20th century, in the US in particular. So we inherit from narratives on the history of the medium at war, if you, if you want, um, established in the early 20th century. So that explains, I think, how African and Asian sites of mass violence, if you add up to the list of reasons, obviously, uh, racism and, and a sort of indifference for these sites of warfare and mass violence. Um, so um, a sort of overlooking of these uh, places and these sites of violence. Uh, and they were actually key to the development of war photography, conflict photography at the turn of the century, or even early humanitarian uh, photography. And more importantly, but I obviously could only touch on the topic in the book, um, the development of official photographic sections within armies first hap actually happened outside of Europe and the US. Uh, the Japanese military was the first to create a full-fledged uh, section during the first Sino-Japanese War in the 1890s. And the Ottomans were also, also commissioned photographers during the Greco-Turkish War of 1897. So I recently wrote a, an entry in the catalog of an uh, excellent exhibition at the Musée du Quai Branly in Paris on, on the global history of photography, where you could, um, I, I try to, to fill in that gap that I, I really wanted to explore in the book, but obviously you're limited, right, in, in how much information you could put in a, in a given monograph. And I think there's a huge field of study, an avenue of study of research there to look at uh, non-European empires in particular, uh, seized the medium uh, in relation to conflicts in, in the late 19th century. And uh, another topic I'm really interested in is the, the use of camera as a means of showing uh, European or American imperial power and control. How was camera used uh, in those days to project this image? So that's in, in the accounts. So you, Photographs, photography cannot be studied as a pure visual medium. Um, what I, I do in the book is actually always trying to connect uh, what you could call pure visual material to written documentation, oral testimonies, um, because some um, very often in, 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 in Africa in particular, or Asia, or even France, and I, I, we could talk about uh, family connection there, there's a memory of what happened on the ground. Uh, in these accounts, what, what very often comes up is the idea that the very presence of cameras as machines, as optical devices, was a sign of power, right? Um, that it, it was the very um, manifestation of this machinery by Europeans, by colonizers, was per se, in effect, a manifestation of domination, of technological superiority, et cetera, et cetera. And while I document in the book for some of the very gruesome images I, I, I talk about, I examine in the book, is that they were actually printed sometimes on the ground to be displayed and, and distributed uh, amongst the local population, uh, sometimes to, to just 
evidenced as evidence of the end of a, um, a leader to say, hey, we are now the leaders in this place and we killed um, whoever was in charge. Now, um, there's also a second dimension there when you talk about colonial violence, where the camera is used by perpetrators as part and parcel of the humiliation of the, the defeats and the battle and punishment in general. Um, I explore several uh, events and violent moments in the book where cameras were actually visible to the people being killed or punished. And you can really understand how the camera could take part in a broader system of humiliation and, and violence. Something that you find um, in, in other instances of mass violence in the Second World War, I'm also thinking about lynching photographs. Lian Fuji uh, has this wonderful concept, very interesting concept of extra lethal violence, where when you add to the physical violence, you add a layer of violence that is effectively useless in a sense, physically speaking, but adds up to the humiliation of the people getting physically wounded or, uh, or even killed. Uh, sometimes perpetrators would make people dance before they kill them. Uh, they would add to the humiliation and the camera could, could often, often did that in, in the context I, I studied. And the last part is um, uh, the last element I think we need to keep in mind and we need to be very cautious about this, I think, when talking about these photographs, is many of the, the photographers or people using these photographs or gluing them in albums or keeping them in their own archives were Europeans or Americans, and they knew about the future potential of this archive in, in the sense they knew about how recording these scenes would impact future writings of history in a sense. I'm thinking about people like Lyoté, for instance. Lyoté was one of the architects of French colonialism in Morocco um, in, in the, 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 the first 30 years, uh, first, after 1907. And he was a careful protector of his visual heritage. He, 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 knew, about, he knew about the power of vision about the power of photography and was very careful in creating a visual archive that, that would document French uh, expansionism and colonialism in the region. And we need to be very careful about this, right? We need to, to understand that for, for many of these actors, uh, they knew people would look at these images. So part of my job was to try and find the uh, fractures, if you want, in, in the uh, in the, this carefully selected uh, amount of images. Um, and uh, one last point, I think we, we might discuss it further on, but many of these um, photographers and um, Europeans commenting on the power of the, the camera uh, were falling in a kind of stereotype, okay? And we, we need to be careful as well not to fall in that stereotype. You've got tons, you literally have hundreds, if not thousands of mentions of the camera being misinterpreted, misinterpreted by local people as a sort of weapon. And certainly in many places, uh, it could have been the case 
even if people just might, might just have wanted to escape the frame, if you want, and might not have given a sort of supernatural power to uh, to the lens and to the camera. But but clearly the feeling here, the analysis here should be that this is a very colonial stereotype. Many people understood very quickly what the camera was doing and started um, interacting with it or escaping it in very smart ways, if you want. And sometimes they gazed back and sometimes they just refused the power of the camera. I've got an example in the book, uh, which is uh, the, the very interesting of the, the family of um, uh, Zulu leader Mbaha, who was killed by the British, his, his head is beheaded. Uh, corpse was actually photographed uh, to, to, as a sort of evidence of his death. And the family just refused the evidence, the photographic evidence, um, telling a very different story of what had happened to Mbaha. So we should, not, we should not play too much into the stereotype of the camera as power, right? Because this is something that is not always true on the ground. And in the book, you also debunk the myth of this camera-induced indigenous terror as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, the, there's evidence, right, that at the point it becomes just this constructed stereotype. It doesn't mean that the camera had no power. I, I, we just discussed how powerful it was in creating visual archives for the future that can be very that are very impactful to the point where we we might have this wrong sense of um a pre-photographic past that might be disappearing behind this layer of images captured by uh colonial individuals from from france britain and elsewhere but at the same time um it's very important to try and find the traces of refusal of people trying to avoid the lens and hear the, the voices of the people that were victimized in the sense uh, by, by the camera, uh, because very often they, they seized the medium as well very quickly. And if you think about uh, West Africa, for instance, how many local studios developed in the late 19th century, early 20th century are in a completely di different dimension how Japan, for instance, Japanese authorities uh, or the Ottoman Empire used photography as a way to fight a, a war of images. Uh, you understand that it's it's a, a, a much more global right, uh, history of the medium that still has to be written to fully understand this. So uh, as powerful as the camera was in colonial context, we should not forget that very quickly people on the ground understood its power, tried to counteract, sometimes tried to escape uh, the lens. Um, and, and the book provides many examples of this. And when it, when it was not possible to just use the camera against, if you want, uh, colonial expansion, some images could be reinterpreted. I, I focus um, in the book on the Denshui hangings in Egypt in 1906, several villages were hanged uh, after a very short trial because they were accused of having been uh, participants in the deaths of, a, um, uh, of British soldiers that were actually shooting pigeons in their village. So it ended up in a, in a fight because the villagers wanted to kick them out. The British soldiers started running away. One of them had a heat strokes, uh, died 
on the on the spot, and there was a trial um, accusing the local villages of creating this situation, and um, many of them were uh, flogged in public, and several were hanged. And you had several cameras on the ground, so you typically have this extra lethal use of the camera. But very quickly, these images transformed into iconic documents. The event itself transformed into a central element in the nationalist um, construction of Egypt. Egyptian nationalists actually used the event, some of the images, to denounce British imperialism. So uh, it's, it's very much, a, um, as a historian, really need, you need to be careful about how to understand how unstable this image could be and how power could shift within these images very quickly. And uh, how about the, the, the role of camera to, uh, as a, how did, let's say, the popularization of photography created some new ways of seeing or showing wars in the late 19th century in Africa and Asia? And I'm really interested in knowing more about a character you talk about in the book. Uh, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Emil Louis Abbott. Yeah, so um, th this is a wonderful, very interesting uh, collection of pictures. That It's actually a private collection. One of the descendants um, digitized everything, and I got in touch with, uh, with her. She was very open-minded about uh, what her ancestors uh, did in, in, in Africa. Abbott was a mid-ranking officer, and he's a... a, a a case in point, if you will, because he was a pretty bad photographer in the end, but um, went to um, uh, near Ouagadougou today. So his, his area of military intervention was uh, near Ouagadougou today um, in the so-called moment of pacification, which was actually very violent because he describes in his notes how they would burn the entire villages and harvests to try and quell any form of rebellion in the area. So you can Im imagine how many people died as a consequence of this cultures uh, policy. And Ahmed was equipped from the start with a um, portable camera. It was not a Kodak. The Kodak Kodakization, if you want, of uh, war imagery happened, happened a little bit later, because in particular, because celluloid uh, film was not very resistant to uh, the, the, the climate uh, in, in, in West Africa in particular. So the French would use the more traditional, if you want, uh, glass plates, uh, um, dry collodion plates, and they would use these very robust uh, cameras made of metal. So I've had this camera with him all the time. And we often think of photography in the late 19th century as this very burn some equipment, uh, but uh, I actually found one of these cameras in another private collection and had the chance to, to use it. And you had a sort of, um, you could load 10 plates uh, in, in a sort of, there was a sort of system to load 10 different plates. So you could take 10 different pictures. And this is not that problematic, complicated, uh, it's not a very difficult camera to use in the end. So Abad would use this in the middle of his campaigns um, and take this very, I'd say, aesthetically striking pictures because of the fact he was just wielding 
the type of camera we actually use today in, in many sense, or at least the gesture, the photographic gesture, would be very different from the tripod age, the tripod regime uh, that ended pretty much in the 1890s, uh, 1900s. And these amateur photographers that were on the ground where no journalists could be started selling their images or started exchanging their images, selling them, exchanging them where they're with their colleagues and comrades. And what I document in the book, there's a sort of bottom to top uh, aesthetic cushion, um, if you want, because this very Kodak-like um, um, portable camera aesthetics started to contaminate um, the higher, more professional photography of war. And you can see that in 1900s. And, and that's where I think the book adds something very interesting to the history um, of war photography. We, we have this history of war photography, which is full of the big names, if you want, right? I mentioned Kappa. Um, we've got these names in mind. And we tend to forget that at that point, it's, it's more muddled. There's more porosity, if you want, between the different uh, people producing images on the, the, the battlefield, okay? And Abba is one of those. So he didn't, he didn't sell any of these photographs. Um, I couldn't find any, um, any of the, his images sold to a major. He, he published just one article. But he's one of the examples of these many, of many of these French officers and British officers selling images and making money actually out of the, the fact that they were literally on the ground in a position to, to shoot um, photographically and literally uh, people and things. And uh, there is this photo on page 114. I'll leave it to you to describe the photo. It's about a group of militia after an execution of several individuals, which was taken in late 1890s. And you discuss this image in at length. You talk about how different elements, you know, show the visibility or invisibility of extreme colonial violence there in the picture. Well, can you talk about the picture to us, what it is and how the picture renders this colonial violence? Yeah, absolutely. So this, this is one of the, I think one of the most um, revealing pictures. Um, it was taken by the Barnett brothers. Um, they uh, established a studio in South Africa in the late 19th century. And where we would use, it would be anachronistic to use it, but they were embedded, if you want, in, in the second Matabele war, which is also known in Zimbabwe as the first Shimurenga. Um, and they were commercial photographers. So these, this image is part of a larger set uh, that is now in the archives of a major newspaper in, in South Africa. And typically what is interesting is that most of these very disturbing photographs didn't circulate, right? They weren't sold to uh, British newspapers, certainly because they would have created a huge amount of outrage given their violence. But the feeling is clearly that it was okay to take them and sell them uh, in, in South Africa at the time. And this image is particularly emotional in a sense, because it probably shows the body of Langabi, which is a, an individual that I, I really worked upon, I, I was very interested upon, because the Barnett brothers took a portrait of him about to die just before the execution, and completely 
um, dehumanizing, if you want, a uh, series of photographs, very colonial in nature, very mocked by heavy racism um, and, and racial violence. But by using these very disturbing pictures and doing the job of trying to trace uh, the individual stories of everybody involved. Um, and thanks to local experts, in particular, Patisa Nyathi was, um, is a local expert working for the Amagugu Cultural Center and helped me quite a lot. I, I do thank him a lot again <laughs> for his expertise. Uh, we were able to retrace the story of Langabi um, and, and to, 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 to disturb, if you want, the absolute horror of these images. And I think what is um, interesting there is even in these images of extreme violence, uh, gazing back is, is a way to, to try and find, to fight back the colonial violence that is inscribed in these images. And Langapi, um, uh, he was captured at Mangwe. He's described by the, the photographer as a very old man, uh, not very powerful. And thanks to the ex local expertise, it was uh, I was able to recreate his entire uh, trajectory, um, his true uh, easy and deadly name was Longabi. He was an Indulao chief of the Ndiwini family. And it is a major uh, uh, individual, a major leader on the ground at the time fighting against colonial expansion. And, and this picture, did it trigger any kind of uh, scandal or let's say rage on the public for on public side? Uh, so not this one in particular, because it didn't circulate, but other ones from the same um, war, um, the, the first Shimuranga, the second Matabele war, did. Um, in particular, the book is addressing uh, um, a, a, a picture showing a lynching of several uh, individuals, which, which, looks, which is a trophy photograph, which was published on the frontispiece of Olive Schreiner's um, one of Olive Schreiner's novels, and it immediately triggered um, uh, a debate in, in Britain as to the violence of this, uh, of this war. So many of the images uh, I discuss in the book, as soon as they ended up uh, outside the colonial communities where it was acceptable to circulate them, to use them, never went completely unanswered. And that's where things are very interesting. Um, you, in the 1890s, uh, early 20th century, what, what I could see was generally some form of uh, outrage. And, and I'm not washing anything here, just um, trying to establish in the book who was outraged and, and why. Um, and that's, that's something very um, crucial uh, to, to understand how this visual material uh, that was taken by perpetrators that were in full confidence of what they were doing in terms of racial domination and colonial expansion, um, their production, their visual production could very quickly become something completely different in other contexts. And, and I really write about these regimes of visibility because they're starting understanding what would be completely unacceptable in the 1900s, right? And you see less and less of these very unfiltered images in the archive. I don't think the violence diminished that much, 
but there was less confidence, less uh, in, 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 in these circles probably to document that just for fear of, of triggering outrage uh, in, in, in Europe. And you do talk about a series of photos in France, if I'm not mistaken, that were uh, published by this newspaper, Illustration. I'm just saying the English pronunciation. I'm sure in French it's pronounced differently. They, it wasn't actual photographs, but a series of engravings from photographs taken by somebody called, uh, again, uh, please forgive my pronunciation, Joanne Juan Barbier. Um, jo Joanne S. Barbier, yeah. Don't worry about uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll um, leave it to you to fix it. <laughs> no, no problem. Um, yeah, Barbier was um, so uh, this set of photographs was actually bought by the, the Musée de l'Armée in Paris, so the, the the French Army uh, Museum. So that's interesting in itself uh, to see an archive such as this one buying on the market these five very uh, violent images just to situate um, the, these images, uh, Barbier was, uh, took part in the final phase of the French campaign that put an end to the so-called Tukulor Empire in, in today's Mali in the early 1890s. So he was a sort of entrepreneur, he opened a studio there and uh, accompanied, joined the, um, the French officers initially to document a flooding, all right? In, in a city called Bakel. So I encourage people to uh, uh, B-A-K-E-L, -E uh, to Google that. Um, it's a major um, administrative center of French colonization in the area at the point. And while there, you witness the consequences of several mass executions because some of the combatants uh, of the disbanding, disbanding Tukular army were trying to escape uh, there and they were arrested near the city by local allies of the French and many of them were killed on the spot by these uh, local auxiliaries and other were executed under direct French authority and Barbier while there took pictures of um, there are two pictures of a mass of corpses two others are showing how the bodies were um, disposed of in in the river and there's a particular, particularly gruesome image that shows five beheaded uh, heads disposed in a sort of, um, in, arranged in a sort of uh, very strange image. Um, and Barbier started selling these images to local officers on the ground. So typically the kind of regime of visibility I was mentioning earlier, it was okay to circulate this. And by the way, very recently, so that was one suggestion in the book. I, I could only document this uh, because Barbier was talking about this in some letters uh, by French officers mentioned that. But I recently found, and I couldn't add this to the book after the publication, of course, I recently found one album with one of the, the images glued in the album by, by a French colonial officer. So there was a market for these images on the ground and Barbier, um, not very smart there, um, uh, sold is the no, send the set of images to his brother uh, in France. And the brother wanted to make money and started, uh, contacted L'Illustration. So L'Illustration, just like the Illustrated London News, is the most famous French uh, illustrated periodical at the time. It's a major 
channel for, for the news and for visual news. Um, and he wanted, he, he contacted them to sell the images. He, they accepted the deal. Um, he, he made quite a lot of money out of that. And the illustration produced very detailed engravings from the photo. So we are not yet in the age of photo engraving per se in, in, in France. The illustration was a bit conservative. And they wrote a surprisingly scathing article criticizing the violence of uh, French expansion in, in the area at the, uh, at the time. And the book documents how very quickly a sense of panic uh, seized some of the military leadership. They started exchanging telegraph, telegraphic messages, and they launched a sort of full-fledged counter PR campaign to discredit the images and the news. So they were very happy that they were just engravings. Uh, that there's actually a, an extract from the letter like, oh, these are drawings, not photographs, so it's fine. We can basically say, this is not real. Um, but the photographs circulated nonetheless. And Clemenceau, for instance, he was a major French political figure and he did not really partake in the idea of the French civilizing mission. He was uh, pretty much against colonial French, French colonial expansion uh, at the time. He mentioned the images in, in what amounts to a sort of anti-colonial, early anti-colonial speech uh, at the time. And he mentioned the images saying, what are we doing there? Right, uh, and the images started circulating in France. Um, anarchists, in particular, reprinted the images on, on on posters and placarded them all around Paris. Uh, just the week after they were published in the illustration, just denouncing French military violence in Africa, they were arrested. Uh, the the police started trying to to to, to destroy all the posters. So what, what's very interesting is how the, you've got a first photographic scandal now, very, very early photographic scandal. And you can see that the power of, the early power of news photography at play. And I think it's a very interesting case in point there. Why? Also because very quickly, one week after that, there's a major incident uh, in a French mine where um, tens of workers are killed in a catastrophe. And immediately, very quickly, that scandal just disappears into disappeared into thin air. So I think it's it's striking, it's disturbing to see how the mechanisms of apathy and indifference is very similar to ours, right? Uh, there's this initial phase of outrage, and then very quickly something else closer to home, if you want. Uh, just buries buries this under um, a layer of indifference and apathy, and it it did not change um, the course of things really on the ground, um, except that probably people on the ground, military, were a little bit more careful as to the kind of images that were circulate outside of their the circles. And uh, how, how about the use of photography to humiliate the indigenous people or indigenous leaders who resisted imperialism and fought back against uh, colonial forces? Um, as I said, I think one, one great concept there is um, Fuji's concept of extra lethal violence. Um, there is this sense of um, using the image not only during the photographic events when violence is inflicted or after battles where the defeat is frozen, fixed 
onto the, the negative. There is also this idea that you can replicate it. You can send the images uh, to newspapers in, in, uh, in Europe. You can show the images sometimes to um, local people, to people that are connected to uh, the, the, the individuals that were killed or humiliated. There's also this idea that you're creating uh, an archive. There was the concept clearly that an archive was created um, to a visual archive that would just crush uh, pretty much anything else. And so again, we need to be very careful about how we use these um, colonially uh, constructed visual archives. Um, photography is not a complete disruption uh, in historically speaking, right? It might give uh, substance to the colonial uh, period, a visual substance that might crush what happened before that was not photographed. And, and many of the photographers and people using photography at the time to humiliate indigenous people knew about that, right? They knew they would shape in a way the visual memory, the visual construction of, of these moments. So it's really a, a difficult thing to do to navigate, right, between the humiliation that is still very much embedded in these pictures and these images, and uh, the presence, right, of indigenous people, the, the, they're gazing back, uh, the fact that uh, even in the most humiliating forms of colonial violence and recording of that violence. Um, our job, I think, is to find, uh, always acknowledge the, the dignity and the historical presence uh, of the people uh, that, that were uh, resisting colonialism. Uh, let, let's talk about another photograph. That's a photograph of Spion Cop. Again, if I'm pronouncing the name of that region correctly, uh, Spion Cop trench and you talk about that photograph becoming an icon of war in the 20th century britain yeah so this pionkop um photographs actually there are several photographs uh taken uh that day um we're taking in the context of the south african war um um in in january uh 19 Spionkop is um, a place, a hill actually, where tens and tens of British soldiers got pinned down by African uh, snipers, humiliating defeats in a context where for the, for the first time maybe the British Empire was confronted by people that were in a position to use the camera against them, right? Something that they had done on several occasions in, in colonial warfare suddenly became something that they were facing. And several photos taken by a Dutch-born photographer uh, were taken of a trench filled with British corpses. And very quickly, this image was taken by the, understood by the British co command as a piece of Boer propaganda to show British weakness, to, to show how good the snipers were in that context. And what is interesting is very quickly, pirated copies of the photos and photos of photos started to circulate, not only in, in African or Dutch speaking circles, uh, but also 
by British soldiers, British journalists. So the, the image leaked, if you want, and was reclaimed by British privates and the British public opinion and became um, an icon, really. Uh, its circulation is pretty amazing. Postcards were made. Um, the image was printed uh, in several newspapers in Britain and all around the world, actually. Uh, in Britain, the, the icon became the icon of the Tommy, abandoned by everyone, uh, the mismanagement of the British command during this war. And I, I tried to trace many of the reuses of the image and, and found literally tens of occurrences of the picture in the press around the world. Recaptioned, retouched, and uh, uh, in every instance, what is very interesting is how the words used, uh, the way the, the, um, the photo was used, transformed its meaning. Um, the French used it. The, there was a pretty strong pro-Boer feeling and the image is used to show, you know, how, how Britain was defeated. Uh, Irish nationalists um, used the image in, in several printed books and articles to criticize British imperialism and to show it that it was a dead end. So it's really a fascinating document to show the uh, in, inherent instability of uh, very sensitive images like that, like this one. Uh, uh, how, th there is this fascinating section of the book that I that uh, sort of sounded familiar to me as well. I, I'm originally from Iran myself, uh, so I, I grew up there during Iran-Iraq War, and I do remember on television there were a lot of uh, people who had lost family members at war, soldiers who had gone to war and they never came back. So the pictures of those soldiers became some kind of a, uh, it, it picked up this status of, of, of a living thing maybe because it was never separate from, especially the mothers of those people who had lost uh, uh, their dear ones at war. So you talk about photography becoming a surrogate, uh, let's say for the rites of commemoration or mourning which I found fascinating. And it's uh, would be great if you could talk about that aspect of photography as well. Yeah, so there's, there's this entire chapter dedicated to how the, the colonizer's body, pain and violent deaths were, was documented as well. So the idea was not to, to do a sort of balancing act and to say perpetrators could be victims as well, but to point out two very distinct ways to approach the figuration of pain between the colonizer and, and the colonizers. And what is striking um, is how photography very quickly uh, became a way, as you say, and I think the parallel you're making is very, very striking because it's, it, it appears like a structure in the history of photography very much uh, that the image of the dead soldier, the, the, the lost one at war, uh, you can see that these are in, in Ukraine uh, right now, is a very, uh, powerful object, right? A memento that is absolutely central. So we know about, I mean, in the history of photography, Roland Barthes wrote about that, how photography is immediately connected to death in, in many ways. Uh, but is, is going as far as writing that any photograph is basically an anticipation of this, right? It's a preparation for what's gonna happen when you have to remember uh, somebody to, to an extent. And what you, people need to understand that many of the individuals involved in colonial expansion, uh, specifically um, people from the military, would constantly move from one form to another. Um, 
some of the amateur professional photographers I investigated in the book started their military career in, in China, then they fought in Madagascar, then in Morocco. And, and photography provided a sort of glue between places and events, sort of uh, visual memory for this. And this was true for them because their albums are, were part of a process of memorialization of what were colonial and global lives. And, and, and their experiences of colonial warfare. But it was also true for their families. They died, many of them actually died in faraway places. Bodies could not be repatriated. So photography took on a, a, a funerary dimension, right? That I address in, in the chapter, which is called titled pa Paper Cemetery. So it really, yeah, rings, echoes many of the experiences of 20th, 20th 21st century of, of warfare. Uh, another topic that i'm really interested in is the you talked a little bit about the reaction of people maybe against these photographs after these photographs revealed the violence of um the empire but how did the public in both france in general both in france and england react upon seeing this seeing the photos that showed the violence of empire so in in both countries um the, the late 90s, early 20th century was very much a period of um, crystallization, cons consolidation of what we can call public opinions. In both countries, there's a massification uh, of the illustrated press, um, a first age of photo inflation. There's the extension of the franchise, more people are uh, having um, a right to vote and higher literacy rates than, than ever before. And what I document in the book is that colonial warfare, colonial scandals were actually very often in the spotlight. People did not ignore what was going on. Um, I do some quantitative analysis that were, you know, 10% in some period of the, 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 the newspaper pages in the newspapers are actually about imperial colonial news. And when something uh, violent happened or a scandal started, you had a you can witness a huge range of reactions uh, to British and French involvement in Africa and Asia. Um, this was never really a settled method, matter, sorry, as shown by Priyam uh, Vada Gopal in Insurgent Empire, uh, for instance, a great book. There is a, this strange idea that, that late Victorians and French Belle Epoque people were living in this completely different moral environment where it was okay to collect skulls on the battlefield and take trophy photos. This was true, very, very true for a huge part of the uh, people involved. But another part of the, the public was actually outraged. And even, even if there was no structured anti-colonialism in the period and under study in my book, uh, this sometimes made, made a huge difference. Um, if you think, for instance, by the 1900s, for instance, there's a series of successful visual campaigns. I think about the Congo Reform Association uh, campaign, for instance, on the, the, the independent state of the Congo. They, they had a real impact. It was not just about indifference. And uh, to the point where, as I said earlier, violence went on, but more under the radar, if you will. Um, and the times of full colonial racist confidence that characterized some extreme episodes of visually recorded violence, I think about uh, the beheading of Rabbah, which I document in the book at the turn of the 
20th century in today's chat, an absolutely um, striking example of pure confidence because this very graphic photo ended up on the front page of l'illustration. That period of full confidence slowly receded. Um, but another element I think that still needs to be studied, but it's always very difficult to study absence and uh, is indifference and apathy. I think there's a genealogy to European and American indifference as to what is happening in Africa, Asia uh, today, that as it roots really literally in the uh, media environment of the early 20th century, because some of the mechanisms, I think, and I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not being anachronistic here, but some of the mechan mechanisms of circulation of images and reaction and layers of indifference are very, very similar to, to some of the uh, experiences we have today. And, and uh, you feel that even to today, both in Britain and France is still that maybe the, the, the public or I don't know, in general, people try to project a sanitized perspective on the colonial past. So, yeah, it's becoming both in, in France and Britain, a um, clearly a very heated topic. Uh, maybe not as um, intense in France as it is uh, right now uh, in Britain, but it's, it's just a question of time, um, probably. Um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the French presidential campaign and, and the candidates, but one of them, uh, Eric Zemmour, um, is a far right, he was a far-right candidate to the French presidency last year, uh, wrote a book, several articles and books about French history. And in one of them, it literally justifies some of the most brutal episodes of French colonialism in the 19th century. And I remember years ago, Jacques Chirac, the French president, when I was a high school teacher, um, forced a law in parliament so that teacher would teach the positive effects of French colonialism at school. Um, I think what is disturbing now is that imperial nostalgia sometimes seems to be moving to a point where we're not even talking about sanitized narratives, right? But about confident assertion that, you know, given what European colonialism supposedly brought, uh, some level of aggression and violence was kind of okay. It's, it's very disturbing to see that. It's not even sanitized anymore, okay? You can see some people with, uh, I mean, a huge amount of followers on social media literally saying that. Uh, think about in this post-truth world, what Ron DeSantis is saying about slavery, what you just said very recently. What, what doesn't change, I think, is how exceptionalists, British, French, or American histories of empires uh, still remain, right? Um, and and I, I address this in the book in the sense that narratives on which empire was more benign or more violent than the others, uh, that, that was actually established well before the First World War in, in the period which uh, I tackle in the book. And, and rather than questioning them, part of the histories of empire written in the 20th century actually cultivated this national received narratives. And, and, it's, and it goes on to a certain extent, even if a lot of amazing colleagues are doing this more global connected history uh, of imperialism, because it's very hard to do. Right? It's very hard to 
write a connected history that respects indigenous voices, uh, that is going to explore French colonial archive, British colonial archive. There's a, an economy to this, the, the, even the logistics of this, it's very hard to do. So we inherit, right, these archival structures, these narratives to a certain extent, and it's very hard to escape them, to overcome them. Um, so uh, we, I think we need more trends in PIO histories, we need more global takes that, that could also include Ottoman, Japanese, Russian, even Egyptian imperialism, for instance, to, to, to be able to get the, the picture, right? The, the bigger picture of all that. And I think wide angle project, and there's a bunch of them actually, right? Uh, I'm, I'm far from the only one, right? I just, I'm not exceptional there. Uh, involving specialists for different countries, um, offering opportunities to look at, re, at the entire dimension of, of this. Uh, would be a great way to dispel uh, some of this myth and also to, 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 to fight against the distrust that we can see growing uh, uh, in historical research and in our own expertise, right? We completely, um, we, we have to be more careful about the kind of histories we write to make sure these post-truth uh, narratives are, are, are not winning. Uh, before coming to the end of this, uh interview i do like to talk about i do like you to talk about the uh the photograph on the cover of this book this is an important photograph that you discuss in the book as well so yeah it's um it's a very striking uh photo and um and the reason i chose to we chose with the editors to um to um put it on the cover after long discussions, after really careful examination of this, is that first the image, as brutal as it is, um, has had uh, a political um, transformation. It was reused recently um, in Mali and Senegal. It, it, it already it has been fixed already uh, uh, by by several people before we 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 used it, and it's it's a, a very unstable rich material. So it's an albumen print from a colonial negative and it shows a young girl um, in, in her early teens uh, dressed in white and she's, she's sitting in a garden. And what I think many people do not realize at the time because it's, it's so unexpected and so disturbing, she is surrounded by skulls. Um, and she holds one of the skulls, one of the human remains on her lap. And it's very disorienting because you've got this mixture of childhood and extreme violence. Um, and it's very hard to locate the picture itself With, without a caption. Uh, you could say, I'm, I'm, I actually studied it with um, colleagues and without giving the caption. And people would just say, yeah, this is, this is something that happened in Europe. Um, if you're not a specialist of, you know, uh, the kind of trees that grow uh, in Mali today or uh, in West Africa, it's very hard to say this, this is in Africa. And um, then the image becomes clearer as you locate it in a, a colonial context. It's, it was taken by René Bontanche. She was one of the first European women to travel the region. Uh, she was there with her husband, Paul Bontanche. He was a colonial administrator sent by the French to try and 
balance uh, the uh, government there because the military, the army was actually the one in charge, right? And she was probably the first white woman to practice photography in the region. Um, and I think that's one of the first disorienting things. She was a woman, right, taking this picture. And, and of her own daughter, because it's Renee, the girl in the picture is her own daughter. So she, she carefully structured the image, right? Um, and then the caption on the back. So if you look at the image at first, it's, it's extremely, it's full of racial violence, right? The skulls in the picture, uh, belonged to Samori Touré's soldiers. So they were people that actually resisted French expansion at the time. They were probably killed uh, on the battlefield and the skulls were collected by somebody on the ground and brought back to this French uh, colonial center uh, called Bacquel. So there's a collision of things in the image, uh, racism, desecration, colonial violence, colonial warfare. Um, and it, at the same time, the caption is a sort of cynical take on what is going on in the image. The, it translates this way. Miss René Bontem playing with the skulls of Samory Sofa shot in the Niger region after some pointless battles for the greater glory, glory and profit of the French marine artillery. So when René probably Renee is writing the caption on the back of the image, she's criticizing to a certain extent the ultra-violence of the French conquest there. So I'm not obviously not saying this is not a very brutal, racist, awful image, but at the same time, there's complexity there that, that, that is uh, very interesting. Raymond imagined herself as um, a descendant of a Brazilian family with um, slave roots, actually. Uh, so she's trying, clearly, she was trying to distance herself from her own complicity in this violence, right? And the forensics of the image are really what makes the image um, a very interesting historical uh, document. So it took years, literally, to, to collect all the information around this image, you can imagine. I found a few years later, after the first look at this image, I found another image showing the same garden Two or three years later, the trees have grown a little bit, and it showed the, the tree of the veterinary, the, um, the local doctor, basically. That was the name given in the caption. So I could locate the garden. So the location of the photo, which was not inscribed in the first photo, I could find it in another photo showing the same garden later on. And there was the name of somebody there I could find because the, 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 the person in charge, the person, uh, uh, living in the house, you can see in the back of the image, is a, uh, uh, an army officer taking care of animals called Henri Sarrazin. And I think Sarrazin collected the skulls himself because he participated in the campaign. And he later wrote a book called, uh, titled The Races of Sudan with uh, a huge interest in craniometry, measurements of, um, of uh, skulls and human remains. So it, has, it adds another um interesting element to investigation and what unfortunately again i could not put in the book is uh three months ago i came up across an album uh with a group portrait showing sarazan with some friends and turning the pages um i could see uh another photo showing captives so captured 
uh, fighters from uh, Touré's Samori's army, sorry. And I counted them and I don't know if it's them in the picture, right? But counting them is the exact same number, right? Of uh, skulls. And there's another page where you can see a beheaded corpse. So probably, um, you know, there's another forensic element there to testify that these people are actually executed and not killed on the battlefield. Then the image uh, moved to France. The Raymond probably took, took it back to Paris. And one copy, one print was given to Marguerite Durand. She, she was a prominent figure in French feminism at the time. And she kept the, this image in her papers and they ended up in this uh, library in, in Paris. So she was the lover of one of the most important, most influential editors in French newspapers at the time. She, she knew one of the heads of Le Figaro, which is a major uh, French newspaper. So what clearly appears to me is a small circle of people knew about this ultraviolence, chose to keep it a well-kept secret, all right? In the end, oh, you know, I think this image is, is key to the book. Um, I had, after having writing the book, uh, I, I thought that one of the ways, right, to, to look at this would be to write another book just on this image, right? Um, and it's not a bizarre anomaly, because when you look at it, you would say, wow, this is absolutely stunning, but completely exceptional in, in statically speaking, in terms of um, um, topicality. This is a rare image. But then if you look at it closer and, and you pull all the threads I, I just pulled, you understand that is, this is a crossroads, right? Of colonial violence, racism, um, choices in terms of visibility, uh, discussions and debates as to what French power on the ground should be, local voices as well, trying to recapture this image uh, in the end of the 20th century, um, early 21st century. I think in the end, it exposes the essence of colonialism in the region, right? Rather than just this isolated exceptional image with a backdrop of colonial landscapes and uh, anthropological portrait, I think we should, and that's what I write in the book, we should turn the archive upside down. This is the backdrop to a certain extent, right? This is the visual backdrop we should think about rather than the thousands of uh, colonial landscape and images we, we, um, we see in the archives, right? Dr. Daniel Foliar, thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk with us on New Books Network about your wonderful book and sharing your thoughts here. Thanks again, Thanks for the invitation. That was great.